All right, we've got a great message in store for you today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are delving now into Matthew chapter 23. We are coming down toward the latter part of the gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters. We're on the 23rd chapter today, and Father, I pray that your spirit will be in this room, and not just in the room, within the walls of this building, but within the hearts, within the walls of the hearts of the people that dwell here, myself included. Father, you know that I've spent hours poring over a passage of Scripture that's a little difficult, a little tricky, and certainly challenging. And I pray now that over the course of our time together that something will spill over and that people will find something they can grab a hold on and stick it in their pocket, maybe two or three things. They can say, you know what? That can help me to be a better version of myself. That can help me to be the person that God created me and redeemed me to be. So be with us now, Father, as we turn our attention to Scripture. May you, by the Spirit, turn your attention to us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 23, first book of the New Testament. If you are a visitor with us here today, we are on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew. 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, and today you find yourself coming to church, perhaps as a visitor, in chapter 23. Our sermon today is titled, Fools and Blind. Fools and Blind. And uh, let's, let's orient ourselves as to where we are organizationally and also chronologically as we move our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 23, which is, of course, right down toward the end of the Gospel. But in terms of the, the life of Jesus, the 30-ish years that he was on the earth, we are down to the last week of Jesus' life. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus made the grand entrance into Jerusalem on, on a colt. People were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He went into the temple. He cleansed the temple. He then retired for the night to Bethany. He remained in Bethany for a night, and the next day he went back, or perhaps it was the day after, but it was either the day or two after that. So we're here on sort of the Wednesday or maybe as late as the Thursday, probably the Tuesday or the Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life on earth, and Jesus now has gone back to the temple. That was Matthew chapter 22 last week, and Jesus was asked a series of provocative questions, questions that were not uh, the product of a sincere heart, somebody that wanted to know sincerely what Jesus thought about something. These were questions that were calculated and designed to trick Jesus. First, he was questioned by the Pharisees about paying tax to Caesar. Then he was questioned by the Sadducees about a woman, a folktale, a Jewish folktale, a woman who had seven husbands, and they say, in the resurrection, whose will she be? He was then given a question of rabbinical importance. What is the great commandment in the law? Matthew chapter 22 ended with Jesus asking, asking a question that they were unable to answer. Whose son is Messiah? And they said, oh, that's an easy one. He's the son of David. Jesus then said, okay, if he's the son of David, how is it then in the Psalms, under inspiration, David called him Lord? And then he asked that that question that was unanswerable for the religious leaders of his day, how can Messiah be both David's son, that is his descendant, and his Lord? And then right there at the end of Matthew chapter 22, notice how chapter 22 ends, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. They had tried to trick Jesus, they had tried to create a situation where Jesus would, his life would be in danger in terms of uh, his relationship to Caesar, his relationship to Rome, but Jesus has turned the tables. 
Not only did he turn tables over, he turned the intellectual tables and it created a situation where his inquirers and his cross-examiners were not able to answer a question that he put to them, but he was able to deftly answer the questions and the inquiries that they had put to him. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. This is the very same narrative. It's the very same situation. Chapter 23, verse 1 says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying... Now, if your Bible is anything like mine, you'll, no, mine, you'll notice that Matthew chapter 23, all of the words are in red. So there is, there's no change of scene here. There's no camera angle two and three here. Jesus doesn't travel anywhere in the context of Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is an uninterrupted monologue. This is what Jesus said in that situation where he put the question to them, how can Messiah be both David's Lord and David's son? And when they were like, we don't know. He then proceeds to give them the next 39 verses, right? It's an uninterrupted monologue where Jesus addresses himself formally and scathingly to the religious leaders of his day. And we're going to spend our time, all of our time, in Matthew chapter 23. There's not going to be any change of scene here. We need to put ourselves in that temple. Jesus is there making a ceremonial, a formal, and a scathing indictment of the religious leaders of his day. Now, let's turn our attention to the screen here and sort of orient ourselves to a couple things. We've mentioned this before, but I might have mentioned it so quickly that it might have gone right over your head. The Gospel of Matthew is organized around five primary sermons or five discourses, okay? Five discourses. I've got them here on the screen for you. The first discourse that we encounter is Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which Pastor Jared walked us through marvelously, okay? So that's the opening address. The next major discourse that we encounter is Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus sends out his disciples, Matthew chapter 10, excuse me, where Jesus sends out his disciples. Then Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives seven parables Right, a, a, a parable about this and of this and of this, and we spent time going through those various parables. Then in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus prepares his disciples not only for his rejection and crucifixion, but for their own larger ministry. And then finally, we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 23, 24, and 25, which is his closing address. Now, there are some scholars that believe that Matthew has purposefully arranged his gospel around five major discourses to sort of communicate the same level of, of mosaic significance and importance because there were five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. Jesus, uh, in Matthew's gospel, arranges his education of Israel around five primary discourses or sermons. Now, these are actually in an orientation that scholars refer to as a chiasm. Some of you might know what that means. A chiasm, we're going to talk about it in just a second, but it's basically a literary arrangement, a poetic arrangement in which you have correspondence between the first and the last thing, and then as you move your way into the chiasm this way, and as you move your way into the chiasm this way, you're finding correspondences at each step, and the point in a chiastic structure is usually the center thing. So, for example, it would be oriented just as you see here on the screen. A, B, C, B, A. Right? Now, the significance of this, and let's just talk briefly here. I'll give you a definition here. A chiasm is a literary technique in narrative motifs and other textual passages. 
An example of chiastic structure would be two ideas, A and B together, with correspondence A apostrophe and B apostrophe being presented as ABBA. Okay? In the case of Matthew's five discourses, there's A, B, C, B, A. And you'll notice the correspondence there. The, the early sermon is an opening address in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. The, the chapters 23, 24, 25 is comparably long and is a closing address. Notice the correspondence. An opening address, a closing address. In B, you have the sending of the disciples into the beginnings of their ministry. And then in the latter B, you have a preparation of the disciples for what is going to prove to be a tumultuous and difficult journey. And then right at the center, in a chiastic structure, a poetic chiastic structure, often what's being driven at is this idea of what's at the center. And right at the center of Matthew's gospel and at the center of Jesus' preaching was a a number of parables, almost all of which Jesus began with this familiar phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. The disciples thought, quite incorrectly, as did most first century Jews, that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God would be something like a bigger, better, stronger, mightier version of Rome. But Jesus said the strangest of things. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the water. These do not sound like the the kingdoms that the disciples would have been familiar with and the first century Jews would have expected. Right at the center of Jesus' teaching is the fundamental dissimilarity between the kingdoms of this world, whether America, Australia, or Rome, and the kingdom of heaven. These kingdoms, our kingdoms, they proceed on civil power and on economic principles and, you know, might makes right and he that has the gold makes the rules and all of the things that you and I regard as basically normative in the political world in which we find ourselves. Jesus said that's not the way the kingdom operates. The kingdom of heaven is fundamentally, and it's very fabric, it is a different kind of kingdom. And right at the, the, the center of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry was this this recurrent phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And of course, what he was saying is that the kingdom of heaven is dislike the kingdoms that you were accustomed to, very much unlike Rome, but very much like the strangest of things, a mustard seed, a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field, yeast or a net. So this is where we find ourselves here organizationally in Matthew. We've already noted that hypocrisy will become a central theme in chapters 22, 23, and 24, and we will see it forms the real nucleus, the real point of Matthew chapter 23 today. This week I read a fascinating blog on the Lightbearers website. I don't know how many of you frequent the Lightbearers website, but it's an outstanding resource, not only for sermonic material and uh, Bible studies, but also there's great blogs that go up there quite regularly. I write for the blog, Ty Gibson writes for it, James Rafferty. We also have just recently at Lightbearers hired a young lady that writes for it. She's a former Arise student. Her name is Annalise Wallman. And in the wake of the American political situation, she wrote a fascinating blog that I recommend you to read, perhaps today on your Sabbath afternoon time. You can read God in His Underwear. God in His Underwear. And she tells a fascinating story about her own childhood. She grew up with seven siblings. And the punchline, I'm not going to give away the punchline, but I do want to introduce you to one line that arrested my attention in Annalise's blog God in his underwear. She says, we instinctively know 
We know this intuitively. We, we just know this in our innermost being. We instinctively know that the person we are when others are around should be the same person we are when we're alone, when no one is watching, and we expect the same of everyone else. Is Annalise right here? We call her Allie. Is Allie right? Do we know in, instinctively, do we know intuitively that the person that we are when others are around should be, that there's some sort of moral expectation and ought, that we ought also be that same person when we're alone, when no one is looking? And that's what we're going to talk about today, a public persona and a private life. A public persona and a private life. Are we the same person as we advertise ourselves to the world as we are when we're alone. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23, pick it up in verse 2. We're going to read down to verse 12 to give us a feel for the flavor of this discourse. This is Jesus unlike we have seen him before. This is Jesus, I don't want to say with a chip on his shoulder because that suggests a selfishness or even uh, an anger that would be unsanctified, but this is certainly Jesus in an attitude and with a perspective that we have not yet seen him with up to this point. He turned over the tables in the temple, and Jesus realizes that miracles have not worked, evidences of his messianic identity have not worked. He has done almost everything that he could conceive of to try and arrest the attention of the Jewish people, and now he will try direct confrontation. Now he will try indignation, righteous anger. We'll get a feel for the flavor of this. Verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, he says. When Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, he's saying the seat of judgment and the seat of instruction. They're the ones that presume to instruct you, and they're the ones that presume to make judgments about right and wrong and moral and ethical and spiritual matters. The scribes and the Pharisees occupy the position of Moses in your mind. Verse 3, therefore... Whatever they tell you to do, observe. That do and observe, but do not do according to their works. And here we come to the kernel of Jesus' indictment. For they say and do not do. They say and do not do, which should bring immediately ringing, ring, 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 ringing to our ears. Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus told that parable about a landowner that had two sons. And he went to the first son and he said, will you work? And the son said, yes, but he didn't go. And then he came to the second son and he said, will you work? And the son said, no, but then he changed his mind and went. Jesus here is saying that the religious leaders of his day was, was the son who said he would but didn't. They occupy the seat of Moses, the seat of instruction, the seat of judgment. What they say to you is true. They're teaching Moses, but the way that they're acting, don't follow that. Because they say and do not do. Verse 4, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one of them with a finger. Oh, this, bears in, this brings to mind Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus' invitation right at the center of Matthew's gospel was, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus contrasts that directly here with what he's saying the religious leaders of his day were doing. They bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear, but they themselves won't lift with even a finger the burdens that they expect others to bear at their instruction. 
Verse 5, all their works they do to be seen by men. There's the public persona and the private person. They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments. The phylactery was basically a box that a religious person would wear and put either on his forehead or on his hand. It was basically a wooden box that you put prayers in. And Jesus says, these religious leaders are making their phylacteries larger and larger and larger as if to advertise some kind of spiritual jewelry. Look at me. Look at how serious I take God. Look at how serious I take prayer. Look at how serious I take religion. He said, yes. And all the borders of their garments, prayers had, uh, Jews, excuse me, had borders on their garments, not only tassels, but a border on their garment to remind them of the law of God and to pray to Yahweh. And, and they would say, look at my, gar- my border is larger and my tassel is longer. It's what amounts to a religious peeing contest, right? Look, my phylactery is bigger than yours. My tassel is longer than yours. Jesus says they're very good at that. Verse 6, they love the best places in the feasts, the best seats in the synagogue. In Jesus' day, people were situated not randomly or serendipitously. They were situated by honor, which was usually by age. And they love to be at the foremost place. They like to occupy the seat of honor. Verse 7, they love greetings in the marketplace when people recognize them. I mean, how could you miss them with their big phylacteries and their long flowing tassels and borders? Oh, rabbi, rabbi. Ah, yes, yes. Yes, I am a rabbi. I am a teacher, an instructor of babes, and a professor to the foolish. They love to be called rabbi. Verse 8, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Messiah, and you are all brothers. Notice that Jesus says that these religious people wear the garments of religion. They like to be in the places or the location of religion, the best places in the feast, and they like the titles of religion. By all appearances, they look super religious. And one of the things that we make, a mistake that we sometimes make when we as, first century, or we as 21st century readers read the word Pharisee, we immediately think that a Pharisee is a hypocrite. A Pharisee is not a hypocrite by definition. A Pharisee was an instructor of religious principles and teachings in 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century Judaism, okay? We have come to associate Phariseeism and Pharisaical attitudes with hypocrisy, but that would not have been an association that the first century Jews would have had. What Jesus is saying here is absurd. These are the religious people, Jesus. These are the instructors, Jesus. These are the teachers, Jesus. And Jesus, with boldness, Jesus, with scathing accuracy, says those people that look like religious people and they have the titles of religious people and they wear the clothes of religious people and they sit in the places of religious people, Jesus' indictment of them is they are not religious at all. They won't even move one of their little fingers to bear a burden that they have the expectation others will bear. Verse 10, do not be called teachers for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you will be your servant. And verse 11 really encapsulates the very heart of God. He that is greatest among you. Of course, Jesus was the greatest among them. He will be your servant. Finally, verse 12. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus begins by making a general evaluation of the religious leaders, the state of religious leaders in his day. And for those of you that have read any of Matthew chapter 23, and you are at least somewhat familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, 
this chiastic structure that we mentioned, A, B, C, B, A, is not only a stylistic little novelty that theologians pay attention to, there is a richness here in comparing Jesus' opening address, the Sermon on the Mount, and his closing address in Matthew chapters 23, 24, and 25. I spent probably just an hour on this this week, just this part, just an hour on it, and I would imagine I probably got only a two-thirds to a half of the connections between these two sermons. Let me just race through them with you. In, Matthew, in the opening address, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with sequential blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed, 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 blessed. Sequential blessings. In Matthew chapter 23, there are intensifying and sequential woes. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. So the Sermon on the Mount opens with hope and blessing. Matthew chapter 23 closes with woe and the promise of destruction and doom. Number two, the promise of salvation corresponds in Matthew 23 to the promise of judgment. The persecution of the prophets. Jesus is like, look, when people speak ill of you, don't worry about that. They persecuted the prophets before you. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to say, you and your fathers persecuted the prophets who were before. Number four, Jesus says, you're the light of the world for everyone to see. You're like a city on a hill. You can't miss it. Everybody can see it. But in chapter 23, he says, you're blind and you're leading the blind. Number five, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And in number five here in Matthew 23, Jesus invites us to spurn Pharisaical hypocrisy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarifies the law. You have heard that if you sleep with a woman that is not your wife, that you have committed adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus brings clarity to the law. And in Matthew chapter 23, he says that the Pharisees have missed the whole point of the law. They missed the whole point. Number seven, Jesus says, if you behave in this certain way, you would be in danger of hell. And in Matthew chapter 23, he says the Pharisees are sons of hell. Not just in danger of it, but as if it was their very abode. Jesus praises internal religion in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you pray, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you fast, don't make it look like you're fasting. Don't put on a long face. Put a big smile on your face. But in, in chapter 23, they wear the garments of religiosity. All of the external religious elements are there. The titles of religion, the clothes of religion, the, the, the places of religion. Jesus in chapter in the Sermon on the Mount says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. That's a sincerity. That's a commitment. That's like, hey, listen, take God's call on your life seriously. Of course, he's speaking in exaggerative language here, but he contrasts that with the Pharisees who he says the scribes and the Pharisees won't even lift a finger. There's a sincerity that would say, you know, if my right hand offends, I cut it off. And here there's an insincerity that says, I won't even lift my finger. Number 10, Jesus says, don't take oaths in the Sermon on the Mount. And here, he castigates the Pharisees for taking foolish oaths. He says, don't advertise your charity in chapters 5 to 7. And here, he speaks about the advertisement of religion that we have discussed. He says, pray in secret. But the Pharisees wore large prayer garments to advertise that they loved to pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't have earthly treasures. And here he says that the Pharisees and the, 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 the scribes, they devour widows' houses for economic gain. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, keep your eyes single, keep it pure, strive for internal and honest religion. And here he says that the religious leaders were blind. Do you think we're done? we got seven more. And this was just in an hour of comparison. You could probably find ten or more that I didn't even see. In Matthew chapters 5 to, six, or five to 7, Jesus says, do not mix God and riches. You can't serve both God and mammon. And here we're going to see that there's this confusion that the Pharisees have about gold and God and which is superior. Chapter 16, he got, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Even Solomon wasn't arrayed like the lilies of the field. But here there's this emphasis on man's clothing and man's righteousness. In, in number 17, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But here Jesus is going to accuse the religious leaders not only of not turning the other cheek but of shedding innocent blood. This is a particularly fascinating one. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, don't pay attention to the little speck that's in your brother's eye and you don't see the giant log sticking out of your own eye. This, this humorous contrast between a large thing and a small thing, we see a similarly humorous contrast here where Jesus says, you guys swallow camels and strain at gnats. And all commentators are universally agreed that this would have been very funny when Jesus said it. It was designed to be humorous, to be exaggerative, and to arrest the attention of the people at the farcical nature of the religious leaders of the day. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the center of the law is to love others. Here, Jesus' indictment of the religious leaders is that they use the law to exclude others. 20, Jesus says, if you hear and do what I say, that results in safety. You're like a man who built his house on the rock. And then here, you will say and you don't do. We just read that, and this will result in judgment. And finally, these two phrases, one concludes the Sermon on the Mount, the other concludes Matthew chapter 23. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this great stuff in your name? And then Jesus says, I will say, I don't know who you are. I don't... I'm sorry, I don't know you. All of this posturing is to no effect. And then at the close of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. There's a sense of disconnection. There's a sense of even abandonment and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Detachment between the religious leaders and Jesus himself. So there's all of these similarities here. There's no question that the gospel of Matthew is a well-orchestrated, you could call it a kind of literary sculpture. Matthew didn't just sit down and quickly, you know, you know, willy-nilly by the seat of his pants, write this out. No, 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 no. There was thought. There was craft. There was creativity that went into making this gospel. Matthew said, Moses had five books. I'm going to do five discourses of Jesus, and I'm going to go A, B, C, B, A. Not only the opening address, but the closing address and all of the similarities. Not only the sending of the disciples, but the preparing of the disciples. And then right at the center of my gospel, chapter 13, I want to give seven parables where Jesus emphasizes the fundamental dissimilarity between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. It's absolutely remarkable. And something that we're going to see here in our sermon today is that Jesus does not offer us religion, but a relationship. Can the church say amen? Jesus does not offer you a religion or a religious practice. He doesn't offer you a religious rubric or a template to follow. What he says at the end of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is, I don't know you. No, that's the language of friendship. That's the language of mutuality. That's the language of confidence. That's the language of relationship. Jesus is not offering a religion. 
When I sometimes meet people on the streets that are agnostic or atheistic or not inclined to religion, they'll, they'll often say, oh, I'm not into religion. And my response is, neither am I. I'm not into religion because people have all kinds of negative and usually accurate portraits and pictures of what religion is. Jesus was not offering a religion to the world. He was offering a relationship. No wonder when the disciples came to Jesus and said, man, we love the way you pray. Teach us how to pray like you pray. The first two words out of Jesus' mouth were, our Father. That is a relationship. That is a, an intimate connection. God is your dad. He's not merely offering a list of rules, of do's and of don'ts. Religion is prone to hypocrisy, but relationships are not. It doesn't matter if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, or if you're a Christian, or if you're a Hindu, or if you're a Muslim, or if you're a Buddhist. Religious thinking and religious rubrics have a tendency toward hypocrisy because so much of religion is posturing, so much of religion is appearance, so much of religion is putting on but then when the people aren't around, you don't have to keep those same high social standards that you do for yourself. And almost intrinsic to religion is a disconnection between the way I present myself publicly and the actual way that I am when I'm alone. Relationships are not that way. I love my wife. When I'm around my wife, we've been married now 17 years. We were married August 4th, 19, or April 4th, 1999. When I'm around my wife, I love her. When I'm away from my wife, I love her. Because of the nature of my job, it doesn't happen a lot, but I do probably spend two to three weeks a year apart from my wife, often in cities and in situations where I would be totally free to go do things that would be a violation of my marriage vows to my wife. I could do that. It would be actually quite easy for me to get away with things, and conversely for my wife to get away with things as well. But see, friends, relationships don't incline to hypocrisy, but religion does. Relationships incline to integrity because you're not merely valuing some public standing, some public standing or some public standard. You're valuing a person. At the center of Christianity is a person, not an idea, not a concept, not just the Seventh-day Sabbath, not just 10% tithe, not just stay away from unclean foods and avoid alcoholic beverages or whatever it is. At the center of Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. At the center of the Christian faith is Jesus came to say, God is your Father and He loves you as one of His own sons and daughters. If you take the person of God out of religion, you will end up a hypocrite. Because none of us possesses enough willpower to, well, we'll talk about that. Works-based religion will lead either to despair or to deception. They're the only two possible outcomes. I myself have met people by the dozens and probably sadly the hundreds who have said to me, oh, I tried religion, but I couldn't do it. I tried religion, but I couldn't do it. Whenever I meet somebody like that, I don't think, man, too bad for you. You just don't have the stuff to make it work. You're not made of the same kind of stuff that I'm made of. What I think is, you're right. You're right. You can't make it. 
You don't possess enough willpower to do and to put your nose down to the grindstone and to make it work and to grit your teeth and to do all the right things if you don't have a person at the center of it. You will either give up in despair, and there are lots of people that do this. Maybe even some of you in this room gave up in despair and you've come back, or maybe some of you in this room are on the verge of giving up in despair, like, man, I just can't do it anymore. There's too much do's and don'ts. There's too much hypocrisy. I just can't do it. And in exasperation, you feel that you're at the end of your rope. I want to tell you something. That is an inevitable outcome of personless and relationship-less religion. The other option is you could become like a Pharisee and you could deceive yourself into thinking you're something that you're actually not. You could actually come to the place where you believe something about yourself that is not true. You are the easiest person for yourself to fool. The easiest person to fool is yourself. And you could come to the place where you think you are something that you are not. And this is why what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 23 is not an act of hostility. It's not an act of, of vengeance or of I'm going to get those guys. This is an act of mercy. It's an act of love. It's an, it's an act of relational integrity. Hey, wake up, he's saying. You swallow nets and you, you swallow camels and you strain at nets. You wear the broadest garments. You've got these big phylacteries. You love the promised places and the most honorable places in the feast. Don't you see your own religion? Jesus is saying, I see it. I'm diagnosing you. Works-based religion will lead us either to total despair or to self-deception. Jesus then goes into a series of woes. Verse 13, join me in the text. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven up against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, oh, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, verse 17. Verse 19, fools and blind. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you have neglected the much weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Blind guides, verse 24. Verse 26, blind Pharisees, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say in your heart, oh, if we had lived in the days of the fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Woe, 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 woe. Each of these woes, Woe, you shut the kingdom. Woe, you bring false conversions. Woe, you confuse God and gold. Woe, you're missing the point of the law. Woe, you value appearances and you extort from the, the, the weak. Woe, you have a careful but dead religion. And woe for pretense and for violence. Just as Matthew chapter 22 had a Job-like feel where God came to Job and said, okay, you've been asking 37 chapters worth of questions, you and your friends, let me ask you a question. Stand like a man, I'm going to ask you a question. Matthew chapter 22 had that Job-like feel. Matthew chapter 23 has an Isaiah-like feel. You go back to the opening 
chapters of the book of Isaiah. Check this out. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. This is Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah, you could almost say, the Pharisee. This is Isaiah on his high horse. This is Isaiah pre-conversion. Look, look at what his favorite word is. Isaiah says the look on their countenance as he is condemning Israel Witnesses against them, and they declare their sin is Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul. They have brought evil upon themselves. Verse 11 of the same chapter. Woe to the wicked, says Isaiah. It will be ill for them, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. Economic increase till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of vanity and sin as if it were a cart rope, who say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Okay, so the opening chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah on a, on a woe tear. He's like, woe to you sinners, woe to you Sodom, woe to you alcoholic drinkers, woe to you rich people, woe, 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 woe. That's Isaiah 1 to 5. Then a really crazy thing happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees God. Check it out. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. He sees these glorious, bright, incandescent, celestial beings with six wings, and they're surrounding the throne, swarming about the throne. And he cried to one, they cried to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the sanctuary were shaken by the force of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said. Check out what he says. Woe is, what's that next word? Woe is me. You see, in Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah, the man of God, Isaiah, the one who is in connection, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, sinners, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Because Isaiah had made a fundamental mistake, and listen carefully, he was comparing sinners to himself. And he saw a dissimilarity. I'm better off than you. I'm holier than you. I'm more pious than you. I'm more righteous than you. I don't have all the wealth that you have. I don't drink what you drink. I don't act like you act. Woe to you! Woe to you! But then Isaiah has this boom realization that the comparison is not between him and others. As he walks into the temple one day, no, del no, del no doubt self-satisfied with himself, as he walks into the temple, he sees God holy, high, and lifted up in all of his incandescent grandeur. And he sees these holy beings that with a breath could eviscerate him from existence, swarming around the throne of God. And they're just saying, holy, holy is the Lord. And when Isaiah <laughs> takes in this scene, 
he sees that the comparison is not between him as the standard and those that are under him, but the real comparison is between God and all of us who fall short of his glory. And so he says, woe is me. I am undone. The word is literally, I am naked. Because I am a man of unclean lips. The things that I have spoken, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Notice how he moves from condemnation to community. Woe to you. And now he's like, I have unclean lips and I'm hanging out with people who also have unclean lips. From condemnation to community. From looking down to looking across. I hope you're getting that. From looking down to looking across. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Matthew chapter 23 has this same feel. When Jesus begins, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, woe to you, 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 woe to you. This is not Jesus in a hypocritical posture looking down. This is the same Jesus who Isaiah saw sitting on that throne. There's something that will blow your mind. This is Jesus, the good doctor. This is Jesus, the true physician. This is the Jesus who can come down, dwell on the horizontal level with sinners and say out of love, say out of mercy, say out of desperation, and say out of hope, wake up! Wake up to yourself because what you think you are is not what you are. And what other people think you are is not what you are. I see and I know, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Just this week I tweeted, while it is easiest to see, to spot hypocrisy in others, it is essential that you spot it in yourself. They've done sociological studies where they have confirmed that it is a part of the human situation to detect hypocrisy in others while being totally oblique and oblivious to it in yourself. It is a sociological, psychological phenomenon. In other words, it's not just something that religious leaders do. It's something we all do. We see things in other people that we look upon with contempt and with frustration and with annoyance. And yet, as a part of the human situation, we find that we ourselves bear a propensity to actually embody the very things that we despise in others. There is another psychological phenomenon called projection, where we actually either actively or inactively project onto others the things that we hate the most about ourselves. And there's a terrifying little experiment that you can do. Find the thing that you find most intolerable in others, and then ask yourself the question, do I myself practice such a thing? And there's a reasonably good chance that you do. Just this week as I was ruminating on this sermon, I was thinking that hypocrisy is like a window, not a mirror, a window through which you look to see others, but in which you also see yourself. I found this picture on the internet. I actually had to buy it from iStock. This is what hypocrisy is like. Hypocrisy is like looking through a window and evaluating others. They're on the inside of the aquarium. I am here. I am the judge. I sit in the seat of Moses. I sit in the seat of instruction. I sit in the seat of judgment. I sit here, but, but usually if you move your head at just the right angle, you can see yourself in the very mirror through which you were looking to see others. It is easy to see hypocrisy in others, but it is essential that you see and detect it in yourself. Jesus says, woe to you, you shut the kingdom. 
people want to come in. Jesus gives the invitation, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, you religious people, you shut the kingdom. You make it hard for people to come in. You travel to win a single convert, to find somebody who's just as stubborn in will as you are, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You've confused God and gold. You say, he that swears by the temple, that's not such a big deal, but he that swears by the gold of the temple, that's a big deal. They were so confused in their basic religiosity that they had lost track of the difference between the presence of God that actually sanctified the gold and the gold itself. He said, you missed the whole point of the law. The law is not about exaltation. The law is about service and about humility. What did we say there in verse 11? He that is greatest, Jesus said, among you shall be your servant. I want to take particular notice at verse 23. Notice verse 23 again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay tithe of mint, a little leaf, and anise and cumin. These are herbs, small herbs, perhaps even the seeds of those herbs. You count out nine, one, nine, one, nine, one, nine, one. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And then he tells us what those are, justice and mercy of faith and faith. Notice that Jesus then says, these you ought to have done without leaving the other undone. Jesus didn't say it was wrong to pay tithe of mint and cumin and anise. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus is not saying that you should live a loosey goose, you know, whatever comes and goes, no big deal. And I'll tell you right now, some of you, your problem is not returning tithe on mint and cumin and anise. For some of you in this room, it's returning tithe on your money, the money that you make. I just want to tell you that you're robbing God. I would be remiss in my pastoral responsibility if I did not say to you that if you are not returning an honest tithe, notice I did not say paying you do not pay tithe. If you retain tithe, you are robbing God. So your problem for most of us is not, well, should I, should I tithe my dill seed? Should I tithe my cilantro? Should I tithe my cardamom? Should I tithe? I'm urging you to tithe your money at a, at a minimum. 90% with God's blessing goes infinitely farther than 100% without it. Can somebody say amen? Come on. Woe to you, you have your religious appearances and you extort. You have a careful religion, but it is a dead religion and pretense and violence. It's funny the things that make an impression on you when you're young. I heard this saying when I was probably five years old, and it just, it embedded like a little virus in my mind, and I've never been able to let it go. I hope it embeds similarly in your minds. And it was a picture of a little cheetah and then a picture of a giant lion. And all it said was, cheat a little, and pretty soon you're lion big. I don't know why. I don't, it's funny. I probably heard thousands of other things that would have been similarly pithy and important. But this one stuck in my mind. It's been there for years. Cheat a little, and pretty soon you're lion big. Jesus warned about hypocrisy. He actually called it the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, yeast. But there's a thing about leaven. When you take leaven and you put it in a, in a loaf of bread, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a lump of flour, it doesn't stay put. 
Leaven is effusive. Hypocrisy is not content to stay small and separate. And this is the thing, I think this is why Jesus was so passionate about eviscerating all vestiges of hypocrisy from our lives because what Jesus is saying by using the analogy of leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy, he's saying, look, you can't sequester off this little part of your life and be inconsistent and then have all of this part of your life and be totally consistent and connected. If you have that little closet, if you have that little area, if you have that little thing in which you keep your little leaven and you lock the door and you bolt it and you shut it, like leaven it will begin to impact and pervade other areas of your life. Hypocrisy is not content to stay put nicely and neatly. Because, of course, hypocrisy is a moral and an ethical infringement. It's a personal infringement. It's a compromise with yourself. It's, it's as if to say, well... Nobody sees this, so I will embrace this inconsistency in my life. And as long as nobody sees it, I can live this happy, consistent life over here. And Jesus says, it doesn't work like that. It's leaven. It, it pervades. It begins to occupy other rooms in your house. You don't have to intentionally become a hypocrite. You just need to preserve a little hypocrisy in your life, and it will eventually pervade who you are. Because hypocrisy right here soon becomes hypocrisy over there. A few more thoughts. Come with me to Matthew chapter 23. We'll land this plane. Verse 34, Therefore indeed I send to you prophets and wise men, scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. This sounds very much like the servants that were sent to the vineyard in Matthew chapter 21, they were spurned and they were scourged and they were killed. It sounds very much like the messengers in Matthew chapter 22, the, the wedding feast, who were spurned and killed and derided. Jesus has been speaking in parables. He's been speaking in pictures. He's been speaking in enigmatic stories and illustrations. And here he just says straight up. This is what I meant by those stories. Verse 35, that on you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, a reference to an Old Testament martyr. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then the final three verses. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We've mentioned in this church before that when you see that double marker, Saul, Saul, Martha, Martha, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it is an indication that the person who is being addressed by the double moniker is in the midst of a colossal misunderstanding about the nature of reality. That phrase, that double moniker, that repetition of the name is reserved for people who are operating in the midst of a major misunderstanding about the nature of the situation in which they find themselves. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Notice the language here. It's the language of, it's the language of love. It's the language of mercy. It's the language of community. I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing the word gather has a kind of voluntary feel to it. To gather somebody, they have to kind of want to be gathered. 
I was, I was trying to gather you, but you were obstinate. You were obdurate. You would not be gathered. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we'll be in Matthew chapter 24 next week. Check out what N.T. Wright says. Jesus' vocation was to draw onto himself the destiny of Israel. The destiny of Israel, not only would the prophets be scourged and stoned, not only would the messengers be derided, but Jesus will come as the son. Oh, this is the son. Let us, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And what N.T. Wright is saying here is that Jesus' vocation, his job was to draw onto himself the destiny of Israel, which in turn was to be the focal point of the whole world. The fact that many, including many Christians, never learned to think like this is a measure of how far we have moved away from a truly biblical worldview. The world had provoked its creator, worshiping idols and behaving in destructive and self-destructive patterns. Israel was called to bring hope, to bring, pardon me, God's light to the world, and instead Israel copied the world. The whole human race had played with fire, and the fire was now raging out of control. And Jesus, as the mother hen, longed to gather his chickens under his wings to take the full force of the fire onto himself and to rescue his chicks from it. This is not Jesus in hostility. This is not Jesus yelling at people for the sake of yelling at people. This is Jesus who has tried every other means. Healing, tried it. Proverbs, tried it. Parables, tried it. Witty sayings, tried it. Kindness, tried it. Attend your parties, tried it. This is Jesus who has tried everything, and in a last gasp of exasperation, this is Jesus the prophet who comes down, addresses the religious leaders of his day in the temple in a formal accusation and says in Isaiah-like fashion, woe, 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 woe. You are rife and riddled with hypocrisy. What you think you are is not what you are. This is not an indictment of Jews. It's not an, in, Jesus himself was a Jew. The early church was Jews. This was, a, this was an indictment of Pharisaism and of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And as he draws this grand discourse to its close, he, he uses this tender, pitiable, profoundly maternal imagery of gathering chickens under the wings. There have been situations where birds have been found burnt burnt and when the when the when the burnt bird is kicked or or moved then these little chicks come running out jesus says i will take the full fire of the the hypocrisy and the sin that the world has been playing with from its dawn since the death of abel the world has been playing with fire nt wright says and you come come the fire is coming come gather under my wings gather under my wings i will take upon myself Israel's destiny. A few words in closing. Friends, you cannot fix hypocrisy by looking at others. Say amen if you understand that. You cannot fix hypocrisy by looking at others, but you can fix it by looking unto Jesus who had no hypocrisy. I said that hypocrisy is a part of the human situation, and it is for everybody not named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was somebody who could come right down to somebody's level, look them square in the eye, and there was no taint, there was no residue, there was no vestige of hypocrisy. You cannot cure others' hypocrisy by looking at them, neither can you cure your own hypocrisy by looking at them, but you can look to Jesus. Back to that beautiful blog, God in His Underwear, 
Allie Wallman says, Jesus is the real king and he is the only one we can safely put our trust in because he has proven himself faithful even in his underwear. And I'll leave that up to you to go read that and see what she means by that. No matter how deep we continue to dig into the heart of God, we are only ever going to find love through and through. There was no hypocrisy. There was no inconsistency. There was no relational, there was no lack of integrity there. Jesus was not merely religious. He had a relationship with his Father. My appeal to you today is don't settle for religion when God is offering a relationship. Jesus himself said, I will draw the world to me when I am lifted up. We must look mercifully at others, honestly at ourselves, and earnestly to Jesus. There's the cure for hypocrisy. You want to be freed of hypocrisy? You want to be free of judgmentalism? Number one, you need to learn to look mercifully at others. Afford others the mercy that you would want afforded to you where the tables turned. Rather than looking through a window at others, through the window of hypocrisy, rather just see people through the eyes of Jesus, through the lens of mercy, the very same lens that God views you through, we must learn to look mercifully at others. Just because their sin is not your sin does not mean you have no sin. We must learn to look mercifully at others, but then we must learn to look honestly at ourselves. We cannot screen ourselves because our sin is not their sin and our temptation is not their temptation and our weakness is not their weakness. You have weaknesses of your own and just as sure as you can look at others and see in them things that you could hold in contempt, others can look at you and see things that they would hold in contempt in you. So not only must we look mercifully at others, we must look honestly at ourselves and ask ourselves, are there closets, are there cupboards, are there rooms where we store our leaven? Do we think that they will stay in isolation from the rest of our lives, or will we turn into full-fledged Pharisees where our whole religious and relational experience will be saturated with a differentiation between who we are publicly and who we are when we're alone? And finally, the number one cure is to look earnestly to Jesus I tell you, the Lord Jesus gave me a gem this morning. I don't know if you noticed this. Let me read it to you. Verse 16, blind guides. Verse 17, fools and blind. That's our sermon title. Fools and blind. Verse 19, fools and blind. Verse 24, blind guides. Verse 26, blind Pharisees. Five times Jesus calls people blind but in the flow and in the context of Matthew. Listen very carefully because this is the punchline. In the flow and in the context and in the narrative of Matthew, calling somebody blind is not a condemnation, it's an invitation. You might remember that when Jesus came into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, he turned over the tables and he kicked all of the religious leaders out and then he invited some people into the temple. Who did Jesus invite into the temple? Here it is, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus saying fools and blind is not sticking out his tongue at them and calling them a nasty name. 
such as a child might do. Jesus is saying, you are blind, you are blind, you are blind, but I am in the business of healing blind people. Not just those who are physically blind, but those who are spiritually blind, those who are religiously blind, those who are relationally blind. I heal blind people. Friends, I want to tell you today, Jesus can fix you. Did you hear what I said? Jesus can fix you. I don't know what your particular deformity or folly is, but Jesus can fix you. Nobody came into the temple with a disease or an infirmity that Jesus could not heal. I don't know what your particular weakness or your particular struggle or your particular hypocrisy or your particular inconsistency. I don't know. I know mine and I know them very well and I know that if, that if they were to be displayed in front of you today, I would cower in embarrassment before you. But Jesus can fix me. And Jesus can fix you. Jesus can forgive your folly. And Jesus can heal your blindness. Fools and blind, my friends, is not a term of derision. It is an invitation. You are all fools. You are all blind. And Jesus invites you to see yourselves as you are. Stop the posturing. Stop the pretending. Stop the disconnection between what you say you are and what you actually are and come to Jesus and let him make up the difference because he will look at you with mercy. He will enable you to look at others with sincerity and with mercy and to look at yourself with honesty. But most of all, he will teach you how to look to himself with earnestness. He can fix you as you fix your eyes on him. I wonder if there are any fools here today. Any fools here that need to be healed of their folly? Any blind people here that need to be healed of their blindness? Father in heaven, fools and blind are we. Some of us, Father, unaware of our own inconsistencies and hypocrisies. Some of us keenly aware of them. Father, we pray that these words on the page, a page that is almost 2,000 years old, would not be a dry and dusty critique of religious people that have almost nothing to do with Australia or the world in 2016. Father, I pray that these words would leap off of the page, leap into our hearts, and that we would see that Jesus was the only one who was qualified to see folly and blindness and hypocrisy and inconsistency because he had none of it. He truly is a savior. He truly is God in flesh. He truly is what Peter said, the son of the most high God. Father, forgive us for we have tried to fix ourselves with religion and we have forgotten the relationship. Father, forgive us for we have tried to fix others, perhaps and maybe even especially our children with religion and not with relationship. Father, help us to make that critical distinction and differentiation between religion without relationship and a true connection with you as our Father and with Jesus as our elder brother and Savior. Father, today we want all of the residual hypocrisy out of our lives. We're not going to do that, Father, by religion, but we can do it by looking earnestly to Jesus. 
He was a healer of the blind and a forgiver of the fool. And so we come today as fools and blind, as fools and blind. And we're praying for forgiveness and for healing. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.